0: Utopia. A utopia is defined as the perfect society or the ideal settings for a perfect society where everything goes right for everyone and basically everyone is happy. So just by that description, you know it is mythical. It's a mirage. It's not really ever going to happen. It's a hypothetical scenario, just uh, it's something we need as a reference point. We're never going to get there, but we still need to have it as a reference point just for our own understanding. Similar to that, you have infinity, or perfection we need these words just as a reference but we do have uh, an understanding that these are not points we're ever going to reach hello and welcome back to yet another Thigh Gap Podcast episode this is episode 5 from season 2, my name is Bogus Noob very happy to have you here and today well we've had uh, our laughs so far in season two, we've had our shits and giggles, but today we, we peel back the curtain and take a peek. Today is the day we, try to look, poke in the dark and see what we come up with. You know, I've always maintained that the biggest currency in the world is people, because we are social animals. It doesn't really matter which walk of life we choose, which skill we choose to excel in. Ultimately, all our roadblocks are going to be put up by the people that we come across. And if we were to focus and develop a skill to understand people, understand humanity, why does it work the way it does, then no matter what walk of life we're on, it makes it that much more easier to get past the obstacles. I remember when I was a teenager, I don't know where I got it from, but I kind of had this credo that it's more important in life to pursue or chase evil, to chase it down, not to adopt it, but to understand it. Because at the end of the day, whatever is good Is never going to hurt you anyways. So, even if you are a little bit ignorant to everything that is good in the world, it's not going to hurt you when you come across it uh, unexpected. But that's not the same for evil. It's when we are ignorant of evil and when we leave it to lurk in the dark, that's when we are opening ourselves up to unwanted surprises uh, in our future. So that's basically what my credo was trying to get at, which is it's always important It's or it's more important to chase down evil and try to understand it. Why does it work the way it does and what are the surroundings in which it grows or it festers? You know, if you think of it as a bacterial or a viral infection, then what are the conditions that allow it to Multiply manifold versus what can be done to sort of kill it in its place. And we can't do that as long as we're ignorant of it. So, in that same, in that similar vein, in, in our season one, for those who've um, followed all along our podcast, in season one, we've had a few episodes that were more geared towards knowing um, oneself. Episodes like Measure of Man, Knowing Humanity, or Society, how do we function as a group, as a whole? And for that, we had episodes like Role Models, Writing on the Wall, and there was also one episode called Rules of Engagement. And in Rules of Engagement, we discussed experiments, social experiments. Famous ones like the Stanley Milgram experiment, the Stanford prison experiments, these sociological experiments that kind of revealed something more about us as a whole and the way we tend to function uh, than you would come across in normal circumstances. So that's something we're going to do this episode as well. Now, In this episode, we're going to cover a famous experiment conducted in the 1950s called the Mouse Utopia Experiments. But before we get into it, just want to remind everyone that you can follow us on our socials. Uh, On Twitter, we are at ThighGap. On Instagram, at underscore ThighGap. And you can also write to us at mindthighap at gmail.com. It'll be curious to know what you make of Uh, this topic that we're going to get into, and what is your own take. All right, without any further ado, let's get down to it. So, the mouse utopia experiments. This was an experiment conducted in the U.S. in the 1950s. To set the context a little bit, the World War had just ended, and in the United States, they were observing a boom, a boom in prosperity, industrialization, a boom in uh, their own population. So while that boom was being observed, of course, uh, the population in the U.S. was somewhere close to the colony that I live in right now. Uh, But, you know, by their own local standards, it was a boom. Population was booming. So one of the scientists, he wanted to see, he wanted to scale up the situation and see what would happen down the road in the distant future if this population keeps increasing as it does and at a point in the future where this population reaches let's say some imaginary peak then what would that do to our society or well the society there and the living conditions and what kind of an impact That would have. So this was his main motivation behind embarking on this mouse utopia experiment. The experiment itself, I'm going to describe the setup for you now. Imagine a large square enclosure like a box, but with tall enough walls for a mouse. So it's a square enclosure which is further Segregated into four equal sections. So basically, imagine a square, and you draw a cross um, across uh, along the centers. Then you have four quadrants, and the walls were high enough along all four sides so that the mice couldn't get out. Now, what he did was he ensured that each and every quadrant was separated by a bridge. So the mice had to get onto that bridge to cross over. And he ensured that every quadrant had equal amounts of water and food supply. So no quadrant got more water or food than the other. And then he ensured that there was no threat of predators for the mice that were going to be living in that um, enclosure. So... You can imagine from a human to a mouse, from a city to a square enclosure, a decently large square enclosure. So it's a scaled-down model of a city that he was trying to go for. And he introduced four pairs of mice into this enclosure. So four pairs, four male, four female, healthy, and He just set them free inside this enclosure. And that was the beginning of the experiment. So, once again, the important factors to keep in mind are, there is no lack of food or water. There is no threat of predators. So, your two main necessities in life, uh, which is safety and uh, nourishment, are taken care of. It's an ideal scenario that he's providing these mice. So the experiment itself goes through four phases and I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of what happened in each of these phases. So the first phase is where the mice were just settling down. They were just let loose in the enclosure and there's a lot of place for them to move around and there's a lot of food and water available. There is complete safety for them. So they took a while to settle down. They picked their own spots in the enclosure. And once they settled down, well, they got to their business and they started reproducing. That takes us to the second phase, which was a phase of population explosion in the enclosure. As expected, the mice reproduced very quickly and the population in the enclosure grew. But The odd observation here was these mice, they tended to crowd in specific areas. So they were not occupying all of the area uh, equally. They were not spreading themselves across the enclosure. Rather, they were choosing to crowd together in specific sections of the enclosure. Then we have the third phase. Once the population had exploded, it peaked at 2,200 mice. From 8 mice at the beginning, the population exploded to peak at 2,200. Now the curious point here is that the total capacity of this enclosure was 3,000, but the mice population peaked at 2,200, which then takes us to our fourth phase where the population started to decline until eventual complete death. So those are the four phases that were observed in this experiment at a bird's eye view. Let's take a look at each one of these phases in closer uh, detail and then we'll take a look at what implications this has for us as a society and why is it important to pay any attention to this experiment at all. So like I mentioned, the first phase was just settling down. Lots of land, lots of uh, real estate, no dearth of food or water, no threat to life. So you just pick your spot and you plant your flag and you settle down. But then the second phase, once the population starts to grow, oddly enough, it starts crowding in certain areas. Whereas in some other areas, it's not that crowded. It's sparse. Now, why is that? And do we observe any similarities with the way we uh, distribute our population across the landmass that we have? Now, I'm sure anyone listening to this is well aware of the population density we have in our own cities in India. And we're also well aware of the fact that we probably are not occupying our entire landmass even. And this was what always caught my mind whenever I travel by train across the country. keep going across this vast swaths of land that seems green or that seems really not that bad, but it's completely unoccupied. Whereas you get closer to towns and cities, it gets so dense, so densely populated, that it's not a pretty sight. Even from a distance. So, why exactly do we spread across in this way? And even as a kid, I couldn't understand why, in a particular state, there was only, if at all, but there was only one city that got all the development. So, in effect, everyone in that state had to look towards this one city to make something of their life, they had to forcefully migrate. From places they grew up in. Whereas in that same state, you always heard of tier two cities that did have popularity, reputation, you know, heritage. So it was always a head scratcher as to why these other cities were not simultaneously developed. Wouldn't it be better better if we had at least three or four? big cities in a state to start with, for people to, you know, migrate to, rather than just having one city, which got all the crowd. So why exactly does it work that way? I'm not really sure, but just correlating what we see from this experiment, the mice did the same thing. And the box represents, you know, um, a developed state of living, which is safety is guaranteed, And there is no uh, dearth of nourishment, food or water. That's pretty much taken care of. In our case, if you look at us as an example, in the cities, you also have a guarantee of continuous electricity, for example. So that's one of the observations from the second phase. Now, what happens in a crowded area? Surprisingly... the. Crowded areas tend to have a different behavior set. They tend to develop a different behavior set and there is a term for this. It's called a behavioral sink. And when I say sink, I'm talking about the kitchen sink. Like imagine a city like a pit below ground level and once people get into that pit, they don't get out so easily. So as long as you're living in that pit with other people, you're... Everyday social code or everyday behavior might be dictated more by the mini culture or the mini society within that pit compared to how it is outside. And I'm sure this is kind of making sense because we see that in our everyday life. Um, We see the difference when we travel to these far off places, like, for example, if we go close to the mountains or the beach or if we go to a place or uh, you know living quarters for example where it there are wide spaces within that enclosure there are high ceilings there's a lawn or a garden outside as we used to have uh, when we used to have more of when uh, back when we were kids back in the 80s or 90s the impact it had the physiological impact it had on us is very different compared to the impact it has on you when you're living in cramped quarters, uh, apartments, you know, which are, you know, like matchbox type of dwelling. The physiological impact that has, uh, in, as opposed to wide spaces, high ceilings, is actually quite significant. And in areas where we, when we travel to mountains or beaches, If you observe how the people live there, they don't seem to be in such a rush for everything as you are when you're generally in a city or a tier two city, for example. They don't seem to be too easily hassled by the small things in life as we tend to get. How much of that is a direct correlation or direct result of a lack of space. What impact does lack of space have on us as a society, on us as people? What came out from this experiment was when the population started increasing in that enclosure in the experiment, the mice started to get very aggressive. So there was still no shortage of water or food There was still no threat of predators, but there were more mice than there were before and there was more competition, social competition, so that led to increased aggression. The male mice tended to get increasingly aggressive with each other in order to establish dominance and the mice who were able to establish that dominance who were the alphas had the pick of the litter pick of the females female mice whereas the mice who were not able to establish dominance they established they started displaying odd behaviors either they withdrew and stopped participating in the social mores of life uh, they only came out and you know, to eat or drink when other mice were not around. And the other mice, uh, the other kind of behavior that was observed is that sort of uh, aggression tended to bleed into a sexual aggression of sorts where either either some of the mice became homosexuals or they became pansexual, which is you're so sexually aggressive you're ready to jump and hump anything that moves. And the impact this had on the female mice was that the female mice had to be responsible for taking care of more uh, babies than before because of the population explosion. And while they had to take care of more of these babies, there was also increased competition from the male mice for their attention. And basically, the female mice were not getting any space. You know, anywhere they moved, anywhere they went, there was always a mouse around, horny and waiting. And if they went back to their enclosure, their own pen, there were all these babies waiting around. So that sort of led to a feeling of insecurity. um, And that increased the aggression in the female mice as well. And that sort of bled on to how they behaved with the babies, the infants. Sometimes the uh, babies were ignored. They were just not taken care of. And they were left to fend for themselves, which is when some of them were cannibalized by the other mice, even though food is still available. And the mice, the baby mice, then grew up without proper parenting and they tend to have very stunted growth. They completely failed in social skills. Basically, they tended to be very antisocial in their behavior. So, in the third phase, when the population was nearing its peak, what we observed was individual characteristics were kind of pushed to the extremes. So you didn't have generally peaceful uh, beings anymore. Either you had to be pushed to the extreme. Either you became too withdrawn, too much of a coward, or you became too much of an aggressor and uh, a dominant force. Now, weirdly enough, if you look at the case of Japan, in Japan there are some freaky situations that are developing or have been developing for a while. Um, There is a group of people called Hikikomori in Japan. And Hikikomori are basically shut-ins. They are people who have completely withdrawn from society. They do not come out of their apartment in the day. They only come out late in the night when they know no one's around or not many people are around. And then that's when they do their grocery shopping. They go shop for food and water, etc. And then they go back to withdraw themselves in the in their apartments. So basically, they have completely withdrawn from society. And these people are called mori. This tendency is also popping up in some of the other Western countries, um, probably Scandinavian countries. Now, what's common between Western countries, Japan? A developed country. What's common between developed countries? No real dearth of basic needs. No real threat as much to individual safety and The similarity between the enclosure in the experiment and these developed countries is that the basic necessities are already met without you having to go out and work for them and to create that situation for yourself. They're already taken care of. The other social phenomenon observed in places like Japan and other Western uh, nations is a group called the Beautiful Ones. Well, the Beautiful Ones, actually, this term comes from the experiment itself. And this describes a young population that is extremely attuned to their vanity. All of their daily effort is spent in gussying themselves up or making themselves look pretty, paying a lot of attention to their own appearance, and They're not completely withdrawn from society. They do participate in society. However, the key difference being they're not interested at all in reproduction. They're not interested in settling down with a partner to maybe have children in the future. But their entire focus seems to go in just making themselves look pretty and focusing on their own appearance. These mice were called the beautiful ones anyone who has a little bit of exposure into Western culture can also attest to the fact that this has also been observed in their society. What else do we have that was observed from the experiment? A breakdown of traditional gender roles, which is the male mice were failing in their paternal duties. So once the babies were born, they were never really around to either help the baby mice grow up or take care of the female mice. Um, they basically were zoned out, you know, and they were uh, caught up in that behavioral sink, basically. And the behavioral sink, which creates a mini culture in a, in a small area, and everyone tends to fall in line according to that culture down the line. Females were failing maternally they failed to take care of the babies, they sometimes ignored them, and the increase in aggression all over caused some of the female mice to take, out, take it out on the babies. They tended to get violent with the baby mice. So paternal role, maternal role, there was a breakdown of it. And unless you're living in a cave, this has been observed as well in our society. There was increase in promiscuity which is bang anything that moves. Gender not a bar. Enough said. The young now if you look at the young who were either abused or traumatized or abandoned what happened to them? They ultimately had to fend for themselves and they had to grow up um, just fending for themselves. They didn't have much of a A handoff in terms of, you know, their culture or tradition or the behavior of a general healthy mouse. So, they grew up stunted, no social skills, and that impacted the rest of their life. And even if they had uh, reproduced later, their kids also ended up uh, being the same. And That kicked off a generational cycle that uh, there was no escape from, from that point. So there was no improvement. It was a downward cycle. And this downward cycle is what led to the spiral, ultimate spiral, to their extinction. The overall capacity of the uh, mouse enclosure was for 3,000 mice, but they only got to 2,200, ended up crowding a certain certain areas of the enclosure, there a social structure formed, a pecking order formed, a hierarchy, and uh, a behavioral sink formed, and basically, even the entire space was not used up. It did not seem to matter that food and water were taken care of. It did not seem to matter that there was no threat in terms of predators, and yet, once the mouse population reached 2200, it began a downward spiral where all the mice pretty much died out soon enough. What does this mean? What does this all mean? Of course, we've looked at a few examples. We've looked at a few corollaries or similar examples from our own society. But big picture time, what are we really talking about? I think what it means is, especially for us. I know I refer to the Western society quite a bit, but because they're a developed society, you know, they've done enough to ensure that by and large in the society, the basic needs are met, which is a great thing, a utopian objective, if you will. But what kind of an impact does that have on an individual? In the developing world, our own country, for example, we have more adversity in general. And we spend quite a lot of time in trying to calculate and figure out how we make things better for ourselves. And we're always having a mental picture of a destination, the destination that we would term success for ourselves, whatever that is. Sometimes we tend to overreach and we tend to imagine that You know, once we reach a certain point, the grass is always going to be green on the other side. But as we can see from these examples, that's not, that's clearly, it's not true. We're constantly striving to remove adversity. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But it may not be such a bad thing after all. Some adversity in life, either naturally present or something that we ensure to constantly stay out of our comfort zone a little bit. It seems to be the healthy way to be. You take a look at celebrities, billionaires, for example. How many cases of celebrities or people with extreme amounts of focus, fame, popularity, that they were not able to handle? How many lives have we known that have burnt out far too quick? And how many cases have we heard of people who reach that point of success that we think is really the destination. But then they turn around to tell us that I thought this would be it. I thought this was the end goal. But once I'm here, I'm no less miserable than I was before. I'm miserable for other reasons now. And when someone works so hard to reach that point, thinking that that would be the end all, be-all and end-all solution for all their problems. And then they find that only a few materialistic problems were probably taken care of, but their problems still continued in a larger sense. That's the point where these people tend to break because you've spent a lot of time and effort in getting to this point. You've put a lot of investment in getting into this point but it's not giving you the return that you thought it would. We've had a lot of these examples. We also have examples of villagers migrating to towns or cities in hopes of a better future. They leave behind everything they knew and grew up with. They leave behind loving families. They leave behind their social circle. And they come to the cities to slog it out. They come to build a future for themselves. And which many of them do. But then they also start regretting the fact that they had to leave their home surroundings. They regret quite openly that they miss uh, the village. And generally, they tend to get a backlash uh, reaction from people around them saying, if you missed it so much, why the hell did you come out? Why the hell did you move? You should have just stayed there. But it's not, it's far easier said than done. Because there was an immediate materialistic need that they had to fulfill. And in their mind, they probably thought once that is fulfilled, it would pretty much take care of a lot of things on their plate. But when they get here and when they pay a heavy price to get to a point and they find that it's not really giving them the returns that they thought it would, that's when the regret starts kicking in. That's when you realize the enormity of the price that you have actually paid i remember uh, recently going to bangalore on work and it was just a week long trip and uh, i was assigned a cab driver to for the commute between the office and the hotel that i was staying at and this man was a respectable looking well behaved middle aged man probably 45 and uh, to my surprise he turned out to be a telugu speaking gentleman like myself uh, i didn't expect to find find that so that that made conversation a lot easier and uh, i i was asking more i was asking him more about his life how he ended up in karnataka and uh, how was his life there so he told me that he's from uh, i think guntur originally and He had moved with his family to Bangalore about um, 17 years back. And the reasons were the same. Because, you know, hopes of a better future, a kid was on the way. So he wanted to create a better future for the kid. Um, So when he moved, he told me, so I asked him, how are you uh, feeling now? So you've been here for a long time. What has been your experience? And he told me that initially it was great. In the starting years before the whole IT boom happened in Bangalore, and it was uh, quite literally the garden city, as they used to call it, he told me that time was absolutely amazing. He had a great quality of life, and it was great for his family, for his child. But once the IT boom happened and all the demand that it created and all the changes that happened to the city after that, and I'm not just talking about, um, you know, construction and infrastructural changes, but the kind of changes that brought about in the society as well. That's when he said the experience turned sour. And now he was finding himself regretting that he's caught in a cash-22 situation because his daughter is um, studying there uh, in the same school for a while. And it's not easy for him to just pick up and move. I mean, all his contacts, his entire network is based in that city now. And it's very hard for him to just up and move and start afresh. So I think overall, what this experiment revealed to me was it's very important to pay attention to the things that are impacting us, to the, to the things that are not so conspicuous, you know, that you can't see and feel clearly. You may be able to feel the pain of not earning enough, not making a big enough paycheck to meet your needs. That's a more obvious uh, sort of uh, visible sort of requirement. But what about the surroundings that you're living in? What kind of effect is it having on you? And are you stuck in a behavioral sink? Because there's no saying that the model or the scale of the behavioral sink is just a whole city. It could be your social group as well. You know, if that's what they say about bad company. If you find yourself going around associating with individuals who are not really evolving, not really growing, as individuals themselves, then that's a behavioral sink. And you're going to sink in that sink. So ultimately, you know, materialistic needs aside, it has to be the, the larger goal or the larger picture has to be about fulfillment or contentment. I think that we end up chasing this really, but not realizing that that's what we are chasing the more obvious things to us, which is materialistic uh, objectives, tend to take their place and we think that's what we're aiming for. But in reality, it was fulfillment and contentment all along that we needed. That would really put us in a situation where we feel like we're having a happy life. And it's not always directly proportional to materialistic success as well. Sometimes contentment may go against materialistic success. So we probably have to temper our materialistic objections, uh, sorry, the objectives, in order to reach a happier state of being, where if your basic necessities are not met, then you already know what you have to work for. You have to work towards meeting those first, and you have to work towards creating that situation for yourself first. But if your basic necessities are met, then we have to strive to go beyond our comfort zone and try to keep evolving and growing and try to take joy from what we do and also try to start doing things that would give us that sort of fulfillment or contentment. Because as we can see, this, the laws of nature apply equally to everyone, whether it's mice or people. So, as in the mouse mouse experiment, if there was no threat of predators, there was no dearth of food and water, those two were taken care of, you saw what a degrading, regressive effect it had on their social structure. How far away is that from the situation that we find ourselves in the generally uh, better off cities if you're living in one? It's not that far off. So in the laws of nature, if it applied to that mouse experiment where they turned inward and sort of regressed to a point where they got extinct, it's something that will apply to us as well. If you want a real world example of this, look up what happened on Easter Island and you'll see something similar going down there as well. When there was a thriving and fledgling population How did Easter Island go to becoming an empty, haunted island with just those um, huge statues? That's something probably you can look at. Now, what I also feel is, overall, there is a macro view of this, and then there is a micro view of this. The world will go to shit if it has to. There's not much we can do about that, and we should never try to take it all on ourselves. All we should do is try to own our own box. The patch of land that we're on, whatever we can control, are controllables. And I guess we should try and fight to make sure that everything inside our enclosure is actually healthy and um, evolving and growing. And not scared of adversity every now and then. What do you guys think of the mouse utopia experiment? I hope you liked it. And I hope you take the time to read more in detail because I've just given you the basic bullet points. If you look into it, the detail of what exactly went on in that experiment, maybe you'll find more revealing things. And if you do, make sure to hit hit us up on uh, gap at gmail.com. That's our email address. Or you can DM us on our socials. Uh, Twitter at ThighGap, Instagram underscore ThighGap. It would be great to hear from you and uh, see what you thought of it. Especially if you disagree, I'd like to know why. And uh, yeah. So until then, this is Bogus Nook signing off from episode five of season two of the Thigh Gap podcast. Hope you all have a great day ahead. And as always, please remember, what do we remember thigh gap subscribe and share guys just <laughs> share hey thanks for listening you can follow this podcast on spotify to get notified of new episodes every thursday we're also on apple podcast for those of you who have partaken in the forbidden fruit if you liked what you heard leave us a five-star rating and a comment say anything like the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog a rating and a comment really helps us out it's free and i'm told that's a great price but enough about us huh tell us about yourself leave us a comment our twitter is at thighgap and we are underscore thigh on instagram